Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 138 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz Test Flight Number 3. I recommend you listen to episodes 96 and 97 before you listen to this episode. The Cold War rages on. The space race is heating up. The prize is the moon. The Soviets are committed to a circumlunar flight on or before the 50th anniversary of the glorious October Revolution, that is, October 1967. But the Soviets are not ready. Recapping from episodes 96 and 97, the first Soyuz test flight of a 7K OK spacecraft was a catastrophic failure. Due to negligence, the attitude control system malfunctioned and used all of its fuel before a rendezvous could be attempted, and also before the rendezvous rocket could be launched. When the Soviets attempted to return the first Soyuz to Earth, the vehicle's self-destruct system activated because it was unable to make a landing in the Soviet Union. Design Bureau 1, also known as OKB-1, was disgraced. The second Soyuz test flight of a 7K OK spacecraft exploded on the launch pad. During a launch attempt, a strapped-on engine failed to ignite, which stopped the launch. But the tower escape rockets fired, saving the descent module, but igniting the fully fueled carrier rocket. It was a spectacular failure, and one member of the ground crew lost his life. Design Bureau 1, OKB-1, was disgraced again. Keep in mind that the Soyuz 7K OK was meant for Earth orbit, while the 7K L-1 was meant to go to the moon. OKB-1 was responsible for both vehicles. In the last days of 1966, Hoping in some way to compensate for the 7K OK failures of Soyuz Test Flight 1 and 2, the chairman of the State Commission for the 7K L1, Tai Ulan, became particularly active. For the first time, he succeeded in bringing together Korolev's chief competitor for the Moon program, Vladimir Chalomi of Design Bureau OKB-52, and Vasily Mission, Korolev's replacement at OKB-1. 
These were the two chief designers of the leading organizations involved in the manned circumlunar flight program. The December 24, 1966 meeting was held in honor of the 50th anniversary of the glorious October Revolution. At the meeting, Shalomi reported that launch vehicle UR-500, also known as the Proton, had already successfully flown four times and could launch a payload of 12 metric tons into orbit. The next upgrade would be called the UR-500K, and it would include a third stage to increase the payload to 20 metric tons. When Chief Designer Mission spoke at the meeting, he proposed a two-launch stopover-style scenario for the piloted flight to the moon, similar to one of NASA's Earth Orbit Rendezvous modes to reach the moon. The gist of the plan was that Jalomi's UR-500K would insert the 7K-L1 into orbit with no crew. Then, the R-7 derivative Semyorka would launch the 7K-OK, carrying two cosmonauts. If everything went well on the two vehicles, they would dock, and the cosmonauts would transfer from the 7K-OK to the 7K-L1 via spacewalk. Then they would set out for the moon. After flying around it, they would return to Earth. Now this was a complicated scenario for the Soviets, especially considering they still hadn't had a single successful flight of an unpiloted 7K-OK vehicle or of the UR-500K launch vehicle. They had never executed a rendezvous or a docking, and they still had no docking version of the vehicle. Yet, they were deciding that two cosmonauts would fly around the moon no later than ten months from the present to coincide with the October anniversary. Boris Chertok, chief of controls at OKB-1, spoke up and said that to promise a flight like that before the anniversary holidays was pure folly. Vladimir Barman, the designer of the rocket launch complexes, spoke out emphatically in favor of a direct flight of the UR-500K without the stopover scenario, but under the condition that there would be at least four preliminary unpiloted flights. Nikolai Pyljuchin, chief designer of rocket guidance systems, who actually had a stake in the flight development of the third stage of the control system and the L-1 itself supported Barman's direct flight plan to the moon. After some debate, State Commission Chairman Tyulin gave instructions to work through both options. Just one week later, Chairman Tyulin convened a second meeting of the State Commission simply to verify readiness for the first unmanned launch of a simplified version of the 7K-L1 on the UR-500K. Shalomi, Mission, Barman, Palyugan, 
reported on the readiness of the UR500K, the first 7K L1, the launch pad, and control systems for a launch between January 15th and 20th, 1967. Radio Guidance Specialist Ryansky and Spitza announced that 100 million rubles was needed to be allocated to re-equip the command and measurement complex. The head of cosmonaut training, General Kamanin, reported that as of the new year 1967, his group was starting to train crews for the 7K L1 vehicles regardless of their readiness. After the meeting, Boris Chertok, Mission and Project Manager Bushayev, dropped by Commission Chairman Taulin's office to have a private conversation with him and hopefully to get his support for OKB-1's long-range plan for the Soyuz 7K OK launches. Taulin said that Chalome had been very actively pushing his own version of a direct flight lunar landing expedition. The draft plan of the super-heavy UR-700 rocket with new engines designed by Glushko would allow the possibility to lift up to 140 metric tons into near-Earth orbit. The Soviets believed this was equivalent to the U.S. Saturn V. An expert commission had checked the plans and could find nothing wrong in the design. But there was the problem that construction was already underway at the firing range for the N-1. Hundreds of millions of rubles had already been spent, and everything would have to be started all over again if they decided to use the UR-700 carrier rocket. Smirnoff, the chairman of the Council of Ministers and member of the Central Committee, was not supporting Chalomi's plan. The Minister of Machine Building, Afanashev, was wavering, as was Keldish, the president of the Science Academy. Much would depend on how well things went with OKB-1. Furthermore, Taulin said that if we don't manage to pull off a circumlunar flight before the October holidays, then manned Soyuz 7K OKs must successfully dock by then. Only this will alleviate some of the discontent at the highest levels of the government. Then, on January 27th, the events of Apollo 1 had their effect on the Soviet space program. These are the words of Boris Chertok, taken from his book, Rockets and People. Quote, On January 27th, we were all shaken by the news of the death of the three American astronauts, Virgil, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee. Rather than having died during spaceflight, they had burned alive on the ground during a training session inside the Apollo spacecraft, which was sealed up according to procedure. The spacecraft had been installed on the Saturn 1B launch vehicle. 
the American media did not skimp in describing the details of the tragedy. Pure oxygen was used for breathing in the Apollo life support system. A spark generated by one of the instruments caused the flammable plastic material to ignite in the atmosphere of pure oxygen. The astronauts burned and suffocated. Attempts to quickly open the hatch from the inside failed, and for some reason, help from the outside was delayed. NASA leadership was subjected to extremely harsh criticism. We decided we needed to immediately prepare a finding stating that this could not happen on our spacecraft. In fact, the atmospheric conditions in our life support system corresponded to ordinary air. But fires also happen in ordinary atmosphere. For the upcoming launch, we didn't have time, but for subsequent launches, material engineers received a joint assignment with firefighting specialists to prepare a report about all the materials used inside the vehicles from the standpoint of their fire safety. Of the three astronauts who burned to death, two had already been in space. Judging by the press reports, America was in shock and the launch dates for the next Apollo were postponed for an unspecified period of time. The disastrous Soyuz test flight number two and the American tragedy prompted the development of additional safety measures. We swore to implement many of the sensible measures proposed before the next piloted launch. A great deal of work was done so that the emergency escape system would be rendered harmless. Experimental operations performed by Bushayev and my departments together with the parachute specialist, gyroscope specialist, and solid propellant engine specialist enabled Bushayev and me to issue a summary finding. We argued that in the event of an emergency at the launch site, Activation of the emergency escape system had to be authorized from the bunker. Meanwhile, the parachute system would activate at an altitude of at least 800 meters and the landing range would be from 100 to 170 meters from the launch site. The descent module used on Soyuz Test Flight 2 actually touched down 300 meters away. End quote. Now let's move on to Soyuz Test Flight 3. At the beginning of 1967, the Soviets managed to modify a 7K OK and implement all the well-thought-out measures from the previous two test flights. The 7K OK would be ready in early February for a single unpiloted launch. Chertok put together a team to fly out to Crimea. Preparations for this flight had been simplified by the fact that rendezvous had been eliminated from the mission, and they would not have to test the troublesome Eagle spacecraft docking system. On February 6, 1967, at T-4 hours, just before launch, the firing range informed the control center to stand down for 24 hours. They had found a 
plus on the vehicle hull. Now a plus or minus short circuiting of the vehicle's electrical grid to the hull was determined by a special indicator at the 11N6110 station located in the bunker. The testers hated this indicator because the illumination of the red hull indicator light was not a very rare event and searching for the specific site of the short circuit took a lot of time and disrupted the launch preparation schedule. On the next day, February 7th, at 6.20 hours Moscow time, Soyuz 7KOK test flight number 3 lifted off. After it was determined that it had successfully entered into orbit and it could no longer be kept a secret, it was given the name Cosmos 140. Immediately, the situation at the command center could not have been more intense. The first assignment was to verify the transmission of commands to the spacecraft, run tests of the attitude control system using the 45K star tracker, check out the power supply system, and then check out the approach and correction engine unit and the backup correction engine. A group of cosmonauts arrived from the firing range along with Kamanin. They were candidates for the future piloted flights. Even Gagarin was there because he was a member of the main control group. Up until the third orbit, it seemed that everything was proceeding normally. Mission and Karimov, the head of the Central Directorate of Space Forces, heard the good report and decided to fly to the launch site in Yevpatoria. Of course, when the bosses decide to visit, things start to go wrong. The trouble started during the fourth orbit. According to its program, before the 7K OK went out of communications range, it was supposed to orient the solar arrays toward the sun and spin about the solar axis, maintaining its attitude like a free-spinning gyroscope. This maneuver would charge the chemical batteries, but the command to spin failed to go through. There was not enough time to figure out whether the new long-range radio complex or the onboard automatic systems were at fault. Before the vehicle entered its communications blackout, the analysis group reported that the attitude control system was consuming fuel rapidly. The cause of this was unknown. About 50% of the fuel was lost during the short time it took to run the stellar orientation test. The optics specialist could not determine whether the 45K star tracker system had found the correct star to set up orientation or whether it had locked on to some other point of light. At this time, the control room erupted into chaos. There were frantic demands for information, on-the-spot discussions, dozens of freelance suggestions as to how the mission should proceed, summons to explain what was going on to Karimov and mission 
and reports to Moscow. After heated discussions, a decision was made to attempt to increase the spacecraft's altitude before the electrical power was exhausted in order to prevent it from plunging into the atmosphere. The orbit needed to be boosted and this would require firing the approach and correction engine unit. If stellar orientation wasn't working, then the backup ionic orientation would have to be used. During the next orbit, the correcting engine was fired and the craft was raised to an orbit high enough to last a month. The next task was to return the Soyuz to the ground safely. The control group decided to try to get the Soyuz to spin on the sun again using the 45K solar star tracker, but once again it failed to spin. This was particularly confusing to the control group. They knew that any flare of light could interfere with the stellar orientation system, but they were trying to lock onto the sun. How could the sun be blocked out? Had this been a manned flight, the cosmonaut could have made the maneuver if the automatic system failed. This was a fact that Gagarin was happy to point out to the control teams. He said with an innocent smile, quote, If I were up there, then wouldn't I be able to spin on the sun? End quote. And Boris Chertok had to agree that orienting on the sun and spinning was not a problem for a cosmonaut. But there were more pressing matters at hand. The control group still had to decide what method of attitude control to use to fire the engines for a braking burn. Cosmos 140 had already flown for more than two days without recharging the storage batteries. Chertok began to wonder, where had such electrical power reserves come from? He broke away from the general discussion and turned to Irina Yablokova, who was in charge of the batteries. Chertok asked Irina why she was not more concerned with the remaining amp hours left on the battery. By Chertok's calculations, there was only a day left of power. It turned out that Irina was intentionally concealing the true remaining amp hours for the batteries. There was a reserve that only she knew about. This was a good example of when playing it overly safe came in handy. About this time, Rauschenbach announced that he could not guarantee the reliability of orientation using the backup ionic orientation mode. He feared the engine's exhaust gases might prove to be fatal interference for the ionic tubes, but at this point there was little else they could do, so they proceeded to load the settings for the braking burn into the ionic orientation system and hope for the best. When the system was loaded, it was now time for descent. During the descent, telemetry from the spacecraft reported that the integrator had shut down the engine. 
the engine had fired for the calculated length of time. Separation took place and the descent module switched over to power from its own autonomous battery. But, on the descent trajectory, the ground didn't receive any signals. After the calculated touchdown time, weak signals began to come in, not from the expected landing area, but from the vicinity of the Aral Sea. At first, the controllers didn't believe it, but after four hours, the spacecraft really was detected on the ice of the Aral Sea. While they were analyzing the results of all the pre-launch recordings in Yevpatoria, they received the news that the spacecraft had sunk. Only the parachute remained on the ice. Someone at launch control shouted, quote, That's because it's a shame that it missed the calculated landing point by 500 kilometers, end quote. But the controls group was not amused. It took four days to finally raise Cosmos 140 from the bottom of the Aral Sea. On February 16th, the State Commission convened to review all the data of the flight. It turned out that a hole formed in the bottom of the spacecraft during its descent into the atmosphere. The burn-through occurred because the heat shield had been damaged during the installation of a temporary cap. If this had happened on a piloted spacecraft, the crew would have died without spacesuits. Even with spacesuits, death would still be possible if incandescent gases burst into the descent module through the hole in the front shield. The State Commission formed a working group to investigate all the troubles that occurred with regard to the control system. OKB-1 was once again disgraced. Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.